0: Um, Because in 2007, I went through a not-so-nice divorce from my starter husband. And uh, (laughs) um, I know I love that term, starter husband. (laughs) Um, And my... While I was going through that divorce, I tried to qualify for a mortgage on my own. And I was a mortgage broker and couldn't get myself qualified. And it was disheartening and Mm -hmm. awful, and I felt that there needed to be a better way. Uh, So I Mm. really started researching options. I found out that there was an actual federal government program uh, that is designed for people going through relationship breakdown that no bank ever told me about.
1: Welcome to Access to Justice. I'm one of your hosts, Heather Malarick at Merrick Law, and I'm joined today by my co-host Evan Clark from Kahane Law. Hey Evan, how's it going?
2: It's going great, Heather. I'm just enjoying this uh, beautiful cold sunshine. Of course, by the time people hear this, it might be even warmer, so that'll be nice. How are you doing?
1: I'm well, yeah, yeah, same thing, same thing. You can go outside and get sunburn and frostbite at the same time at this time of year, right?
2: And uh, we're just about to start, like, lockdown number three. How do you feel about that?
1: Um, I hope it's the last one. That's for sure. I'd like to see an end to this. I'd like to see my family and my friends again. But, yeah, I'm optimistic, cautiously optimistic.
2: I share your hopes.
1: Yeah nothing to do but be hopeful i guess um we're also joined by our very special regular guest kim mcdonald hi kim how are you
3: hi heather thanks for having me on today
2: it's always a pleasure to have you on kim
1: (laughs) always a pleasure So um, we're also joined by a very special guest, um, Krista Lindstrom. So Krista is a certified financial, certified collaborative financial neutral. She's also a licensed life insurance broker and a mortgage broker. And um, she started off her bio that she sent us with, I love, all caps, my work as a mortgage broker, (laughs) and I love talking to people that love their work because they're so passionate about it. And I know that Krista is one of those people that's passionate. So really excited to ask her questions today um, about her work and share some information with our listeners about the world of mortgages. Hi Krista, how are you doing? Thank you, welcome for, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I was kind of laughing
0: uh, when you said uh, sunburn and frostbite at the same time. Because if you look fairly closely, I have wicked sunburn right now. uh, Because I went skiing on Monday, I played hooky from work and went skiing on Easter Monday and didn't put sunscreen on. Uh, Goofball move, I know better. And I've got this really nasty sunglass uh, burn.
2: right now. <laughs> it's very prestigious, actually.
0: <laughs> I got natural color to my face right now. <laughs> you
2: know, like it, it used to be back in the day that, that it was prestigious to be have zero color, right? And you'd walk around with a parasol. Yeah. Only the, the low-class workers had suntans. But now it's flipped, so you're good.
1: Yeah. yeah. There we go. Yeah, a sign of being able to live a life of leisure and, and enjoyment. Yeah. You're you're a real outdoor adventurer too. The last time you and I chatted, you were talking about the sled that you bought. Oh yeah. Which apparently is also what a skidoo is called. And I, but, but people that are serious about it, call it sleds is from what I understand. So
0: Yeah. Um, my husband and I are mountain uh,
1: snowmobilers. So, um, I got it new to me, uh, sled
0: this year. It's a Skidoo, uh, 850, uh, which is a, it has a ton of power. Uh, I'm, I will say that it's winning the battle in between me and it right now. I fall off a fair bit, uh, cause it's fairly tippy. Uh, but I assured of myself that I will get better and I'm super excited to be able to ride that sled up in the mountains.
1: My goal is to keep up with all the boys up there. So, uh, a bit of a tomboy at heart so you just like hurdle yourself around on a machine up and down a mountain <laughs> well okay um, i mean that sounds like a blast but <laughs> it sounds terrifying the most
0: majestic part about it is uh, you know when you're on top of the clouds and on the on a mountain peak and being able to be above and look down and have all the clouds below you and have the sun shining there's just something about that feeling that I can't replace uh with anything else um so when you're up there it's pretty peaceful but uh I've learned that I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie I like feeling scared I like that uh full horsepower feeling um and I get that snowmobiling for sure so that's just who I am
2: (laughs) what kind of of car do you drive
0: a Honda Civic (laughs)
2: No. Well, it be like uh, a souped-up Honda Civic.
0: Well, it is a turbo. Yeah, it is. But uh, I've learned not to drive very fast in my car because my husband threatened uh, to put photo radar tickets into our monthly budget. Uh, uh, so that's not cool, uh, paying photo radar all the time. So I set cruise control everywhere I go now.
2: You know what? I do that too, and that's kind of a new thing for me as well. Like I, I, One day I just decided, how about I just set it on cruise control and I'll just take a deeper breath. So my commute, and I just, Ooh. I actually set it for the speed limit itself, which is slower than everyone else is going. Right. But that way I'm never like, um, you know, worried, wait, with those lights that just flashed as it went through the intersection for me or for the guy next to me,
0: right? You
2: know, like I, I, I've, I have a clean conscience as I drive around the city. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. So, you're right. Heather, snowmobiling and sleds are one in the same. um Just most people don't take it to the extent that we take it, but there is definitely a crowd out there that does.
1: So. Mm. Fun. Mm. You should really try it sometime. It's a lot Sounds of fun. Sounds amazing. Well, maybe I'll come join you one of these yeah.
0: days. Yeah, I'll borrow you my Avi gear or avalanche gear and you could go on up and enjoy.
1: Ooh well, it just got me feeling a little scared and nervous, yeah. but you know variety <laughs> variety's the spice of life, right, and why not live on the edge a little bit so <laughs> Fair enough. um okay, so you're a wild adventurer mountain gal, but you're also a mortgage broker, so yeah. um maybe you can start and tell us a little bit about your qualifications your what you, what you do, sure. When you're not a racing broker. up and down mountains. <laughs> oh, sorry.
0: Uh, I've sorry. been a mortgage broker for 16 years now. Um, I love being a mortgage broker. I find it incredibly interesting. I'm kind of one of those people that's a bit of a a bit of a geek when it comes to i like following the economy i like following economist reports i like reading what the bank of canada does i just really like stuff like that uh so my work isn't really work to me and i really enjoyed um math in high school i got a math scholarship in high school so i'm fortunate that that uh, kind of comes easy uh to me and uh, that came I was really looking uh, for an opportunity to be able to uh, be self-employed. I was a young mom when I became a mortgage broker. I have two adult kids that I'm super proud of now. And uh, this was a great way to be able to work from home and be a mom. Uh, And it's just turned into this amazing career. I changed the specialty of my mortgage brokerage to um, divorce Maybe about uh, five or six years ago, um, because in 2007 I went through a not so nice uh, divorce from my starter husband. And uh, <laughs> um, I know I love that term, starter <laughs> husband. <laughs> um, and my While I was going through that divorce, I tried to qualify for a mortgage on my own. And I was a mortgage broker and couldn't get myself qualified. And it was disheartening and Mm -hmm. awful. And I felt that there needed to be a better way. Uh, So I Mm. really started researching options. I found out that there was an actual federal government program uh, that is designed for people going through relationship breakdown that no bank ever told me about. Um, or that I never knew about, and I've learnt uh, the ins and outs of that into great detail uh, now, and specialise—oh, um, sorry—specialise uh, in that particular program. And it's actually really rewarding to see people um, who um, are now on their own and being able to own their own house and have financial independence from their ex-spouse. I I love that. Part of it, the success of people um, being able to do things on their own, especially the ones that were heavily reliant uh, financially on their other spouse, uh, the power that comes with that is wonderful to see. So I went and got my life insurance brokering license about uh, three or four years ago, because there seemed to be a natural need there for people who are getting mortgages to uh, do life insurance I don't do complex cases at all I refer those out but basic life insurance I do so I use all those designations together with uh, oh and then I became obviously the same thing as as I think uh, both Heather and Kim uh, trained collaborative professional you know to understand those uh, sides of I think there's a better way to divorce rather than litigating and uh, I really like working with those couples who are trying to do the best for their family despite the fact that their marriage is no longer working. So I like all of those combined.
2: Wow. So um, I think what you talked about there for the whole, your experience of not getting, a, being able to qualify for a mortgage when you're getting divorced. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about that and that program because, um, I'm sure Heather already knows about it, but I didn't, I don't know about this program. Okay.
0: okay. We can talk and about it.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, let's do it. And, uh, I, am excited to learn about that. So, um, you know, that's something I can tell my clients because it's very common, right? Like people go from joint incomes and usually one person making more than the other. And now one person is going to take the home and maybe it's the person with the lower income. Um, regardless, they can't um, get approved for, to refinance it. So th- I think that scenario is super common. So I'm excited you have to say about that. And um, I thought it was interesting that you got your LLQP, your life license mm-hmm. uh, and, and smart. Uh, <laughs> so when I was back in another life, uh, in my like late teens, early twenties, my dad had a financial planning business that I worked with my brothers in that business for a little while. And so I have a little bit of background in, in that area and they were, you know, they're selling life insurance and financial products. And so, um, yeah, that, uh, I think that's something that's great because so many people, when you get the mortgage from the bank the bank's like, Hey, you want life insurance? And they're like, yeah, it seems like a great idea but it's uh, terrible insurance yeah. that goes down in value as you pay down your mortgage. And so it like, what a great thing to be able to offer, like, Hey, and by the way, don't get the, you know, the bank's insurance. I can offer you this insurance product. That's much cheaper and we'll do something even better than what you're doing. So I think that's, that's yeah. pretty cool that you did. I'm that.
0: sure Kim probably has an LLQP as well. Uh, is that right, Kim? Yeah, that's great. Yes, and you're probably way more trained in that area than than I am. I just do kind of the the basics, but the main driver to that Evan was uh, my very first year of mortgage brokering. I was working with, um, like, I was learning mortgage brokering, and I had taken over a file uh, from a another mortgage broker uh, that they had sold MPP. So mortgage protection plan, which is a creditor insurance program that um, people think that they have life insurance. And in that particular case, um, it was a husband and wife and two small kids. The wife stayed at home. The husband was in his thirties and he was a finishing carpenter. He was uh, finishing uh, um, cabinets in somebody's home and he fell dead. Um, on the floor of somebody's home well what ended up happening is he had the MPP uh, coverage but um, MPP ended up subpoenaing his health records uh, back to his birth Uh, and the reason that they did that is there's four health questions on a MPP, uh, like on a creditor application. There was four health questions and they determined that he had lied on his application. Um, so they were looking for an opportunity to decline the coverage. He, when he was in high school, he, um, had a racing heart when he played football. So they said uh, because he'd talked to the team doctor about his racing heart that he lied about the pre-existing heart condition and they declined the coverage. And from that day forward, I swore to God I would never sell MPP because I never wanted to ever have to tell a widow, you know, of a mother of two that she didn't have the coverage that they thought that they had.
2: So that's terrible. Creditor interest is horrible.
0: Anyway, next topic.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, if anyone didn't know, insurers love to not pay.
0: No. <laughs> True, they look for ways to not pay. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. So, so in your so, the insurance products that you sell now, um, that that kind of thing is not going to be an issue.
0: Correct. Guaranteed to pay now because we underwrite your health um, ahead of time. Right, Kim? Correct.
3: <laughs> the last thing you want is to put something in place and then something goes wrong and that's the time that they start looking yeah. at the questions and the answers and that's when they decide whether they want to issue this policy. So like Krista says, it's much better to to have I call them the goblins, the little goblins look at your policy ahead of time and try and find problems with it. And once they stamp that approved, then you're 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 pretty good. You're pretty good to go. Uh,
2: Yeah. And also not that that guy, not that that guy did, but don't ever lie on your insurance application because that what happens is you get a refund of premiums. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it.
3: When a good insurance advisor would, wouldn't make sure that, that, that doesn't happen. So there's a difference between having somebody who's not insurance licensed selling insurance versus somebody who is insurance licensed selling insurance. You're going to get better, better guidance along the way
1: for sure yeah but yeah oh that's interesting so yeah he would have just been answering those four questions on his own he's it's not one of those things where he's you know they're they're talking to his doctor or doing more of an investigation so it was probably just a sort of innocent oversight type of thing right
3: yeah yeah
1: that's tragic
3: nine
0: months is how long uh the they investigated his health for before they declined the claim. So they sat in limbo for nine months, not knowing in this particular situation, uh, the wife that was left, um, had two sets of parents, like her husband's parents and her parents that could help out. So it wasn't horrific. I mean, obviously it was horrific. Her husband died. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know, from a financial standpoint, both sets of parents chipped in and helped out, but right. Gosh, wouldn't, right. I don't want anybody to ever be in that situation
1: again. Yeah. Especially to be relying on something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So the spousal buyout program, Evan, I'm glad that you thought that I knew all about it, but all I know about it is to send people to Krista. So I'm actually really (laughs) excited about Krista's answer of what the spousal mortgage buyout is uh, as well. So maybe you can tell us about it. Okay, great. Uh, So the Spousal Buyout program
0: is actually a federal program designed for individuals who are going through relationship breakdown. So if we compare it uh, to a refinance, um, it has to do with equity inside of your home. So under the Spousal Buyout program, you can access 95% of the equity inside of your home. And why that's important, especially here in Alberta, is we have not seen property values rise in the past 10 years. So people who bought the 5% down probably still only have 5% um, equity inside of their home. Actually, probably two because they had to pay the CMHC premium, but anyway. Um, so the spousal buyout program allows, um, in situations of relationship breakdown, So specifically relationship breakdown, so it can be a married couple, a common law couple, Um, even like if a brother and sister own a home together and had a falling out in relationship, um, they can access 95% of the value of their home to be able to remove one person from the title. Um, How that differs uh, to the uh, typical refinance, like if you were gonna go to the bank, is how that differs is the bank requires you to only finance 80% of the value of your home. So you can access 15% more equity uh, instead of um, leaving 20% equity inside. So that's the main difference there is uh, lots of people get declined Uh, Because they don't have enough equity inside of their home when they go to the bank. And that's why this is really um, important is you can access, you know, an additional 15% of funds. What's also really cool about the program is you can, uh, providing that there's enough equity, not only uh, can you remove the mortgage from your ex-spouse's name, if there's a joint debt, So maybe you have a car loan or a credit card that's considered matrimonial debt. You can include that um, in the transaction or maybe um, one of the spouses um, has an equity requirement. So maybe when there's, Let's say there's $20,000 in equity and they want to divide that 50 50, $10,000 to one spouse, 10 to the other. Um, it allows for an equity payout of $10,000 or whatever it is that the lawyers decide um, is the equity payout. So it allows that to happen. We can include um, legal fees inside of that. So providing all of this is. Itemized in the minutes of settlement um, because one of the terms and conditions of this mortgage is signed minutes of settlement. So, providing we say payout, you know, for example, Scotia Bank joint visa of you know twenty thousand dollars, we can include that um, in the proceeds. So, I've become a really good coach, you know, in saying, you know, this will work if we do this and this and this. And then I actually coach the lawyers saying could you please itemize these things, you know, in the minutes of settlement in order for this to uh, proceed. And we've had a lot of success uh, with it. And so it's very helpful uh, because I think it's really important to not keep couples financially tied uh, Mm -hmm. to each other as they go through divorce. Financial independence is really important Mm -hmm. because although you might be semi getting along right now, uh, I always find if you're financially tied Things go wrong really quickly and you don't want to be able to, you know, adversely affect, you know, somebody else's credit because you're still financially tied to each other. So the most common people who use the spousal buyout program are generally people who have children and they want to keep them in the same neighborhood. They don't want a big, um, upheaval, people you know for the kids they generally you know want to keep the same neighborhood uh, friends for the kids they want to you know keep walking distance to the school or whatever it is uh, so that's why we see a lot of people doing disposal buyout program is it's best what well, that's what's best for the family typically speaking okay. so they're really good program I really like it one thing I will note um, it is a CMHC. Well, in Canada, we have three insurers, CMHC, Sagan, and Canada Guarantee. Uh, so the one of the things that um, I do like to bring to your attention is it is an insured program. So if you hadn't we can transfer the CMHC premium um, over in most cases. Uh, but if you hadn't previously paid the CMHC program, we do have to include the CMHC premium. So that's something that may need to be negotiated from a, if a lawyer is watching this, you know, or a financial planner or putting those numbers together, we do have to consider um, the CMHC
1: premium on this. Okay, Does that
0: answer your question? Do you understand that it's an extra 15%? Is that, you guys, is that clear?
1: Yeah, so um I think maybe I have a question to ask for our viewers potentially. Um so when you're talking about equity, you're talking about the value that's in the home, is that right? So yeah. uh, maybe can you define that in uh, of yeah. In, in, that was a uh, my part that everybody knows what equity is. Equity is
0: the difference in between the value of your home mm-hmm. versus how much you owe. So okay. the value of your home is $300,000 and you still have $250,000 worth of mortgage. The difference in between $300,000 and 250 dollars is $50,000. That's your equity. And typically, okay. it's split in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I really leave that up to the lawyers to decide because, you know, sometimes... There's other circumstances there. Why it wouldn't go 50 50. Uh, but that's something that I leave that to you guys and you guys tell me how much the equity payout should be to the other spouse. Right. Right.
2: Yeah. It might be helpful to just explain that when it comes to property division, um, generally the division, the property as a whole. And so not just the house, but whatever other property, like your sleds, for example, (laughs) uh, all get thrown into a pot, so to speak. And um for the division of the value of the whole thing it's it's a holistic thing so that can look like a number of different things um for example there could be other uh investments that if one person's keeping the house another person's keeping investments and that kind of can balance out the value of the house yeah. so it doesn't necessarily mean you have to split the equity of the house 50-50 but it's, it's not infrequent that the house is the only or the main asset. And so you can see how that being able to access that extra equity is would be so important, especially for people that don't have a lot of assets. Um, I, so, oh, and also I just wanted to say minutes of settlement is uh, a, a term of art, I guess, that we use. It's usually so I, there's other names for this document, which include separation agreement or property division agreement or support parenting and property agreement. They all mean the same thing. We call it minutes of settlement when litigation or the court process has started, then it's generally that's when we call it minutes of settlement, but they all mean the same thing. Um, They all do the same thing. And when you're talking about minutes of settlement, I'm assuming you're talking whatever, the agreement that deals with the property.
0: Well, yeah, that agreement deals with more than just property, right? And we all know that that also agrees with doubt. uh, It addresses dower rights. It addresses child support. It addresses spousal support. It addresses all the kind of the big important parts, um, you know, when you go through divorce. So, yeah, those. Essentially, we can't. We have to make sure that both spouses agree you know, and that's what the minutes of settlement kind of outlines is that, you know, both people sign that they agree because as you can imagine, nobody wants to have their name taken off of a home and quite frankly, can't be taken off of a home until they agree uh, to be taken off. So that's the whole idea behind it. it is, you know, protecting all
1: parties.
2: Yeah. So, um, what is the difference between, uh, like what's special about the spousal buyout program? Like I'm just thinking, okay, so what, what can they just refinance with a CMHC or, or other insured mortgage? Um, what does a spousal buyout program, how does that affect things? Does it change the process or change how they're approved or, or what?
0: Well, the, it allows you to access way more of the funds inside of your home. So that's the main thing: is you're allowed to access um, way more equity than you would traditionally be allowed to access. Because, uh, like I said, a refinance you have to leave 20% equity inside of your home. A spousal buyout you only have to leave five percent equity inside of your home. So
2: right, and I guess you can't you can't refinance with a with an insured mortgage. Or first yeah, time. Yeah, because refinances yeah. are uninsurable. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. So so we
0: actually get structured as a purchase, Evan.
2: Uh,
0: So basically, you know, if, you know, you and Kim owned a house together and we're divorcing, uh, Kim and Evan would be the sellers of the house. And if Evan, you were taking over, you'd be the purchaser, you know, of the home. So it's actually done as a purchase instead of a refinance. Right. It's pretty cool. So So for people
3: who have never had a mortgage before... They probably, or their spouse handled the mortgage paperwork. They just were in the meeting, just kind of zoned out. They do not know what CMHC insurance is, mm. why, why this protection is mandated on certain mortgages. Is there any chance you could explain that in, in a simple way, Krista? Sure. So CMHC is uh, regulated by the
0: government of Canada for people who have less than 20% equity inside of their home. Um, So it allows people to have home ownership, despite the fact that they have limited equity. Because like back in the 80s, um, there wasn't CMHC and you had to have 20% down in order to purchase a home. So to encourage home ownership and take the risk away from the lender, they created CMHC. So basically it's an insurance that you pay the premium on. It's a one-time premium that's added to your mortgage. Uh, that essentially protects the lender to take a risk um, on you uh, to be able to purchase a home. So people find that a bit confusing. Uh, you pay the premium, but it protects the lender in the event that you default. So
2: yeah, that's how- the, the, the way that it protects the lender is, so normally if you default on a mortgage, which was happening a lot in the 80s, yes. what would happen is the bank could seize the house and, um, if they sell the house and everything through foreclosure and the house doesn't cover all of their, the debt and everything, well, too bad. That's you, you got the house. That's what you get with CMHC or with an insured mortgage. That's not the end of the story. They can still come after the lender.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: For whatever's left owing. So it's a, you know, you have to be aware of that kind of a risk when you're doing a CMHC mortgage. And the same would apply to this spousal buyout um, because it's the same insurance. But that's how they take the risk away from the lender. The lender has a risk that they buy it over, like overvalued, price goes down. And now the lender's stuck holding the bag. And so the insurance company takes that risk away and says, no, we'll insure that value for you. And then the insurance company will sue you, sue the, the borrower.
0: Yeah, so in the event of default, um, they would foreclose on the house and sell. And if there was a shortfall still, right, so the, the insurer would pay back the bank for the shortfall, and then the insurer would go back and attempt to sue the sellers uh, for whatever insurance that they paid to the bank.
1: Is that- Okay. This is kind of blowing my mind because I didn't know that. So you pay insurance to have the insurance company sue you in the event that you default on your mortgage.
2: You're not alone, Heather. You're not alone. I did
1: not know that that's how that
0: worked at the end of the day. Yes, that is exactly how it works and you pay the premium
1: on it. So you're paying the premium for the bank, basically for the bank to insure themselves. Yes
0: for the risk to take on you because you don't have 20% down. That CMHC premium goes away if you have 20% down payment.
1: Okay, 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 fascinating. I didn't know that last little bit about the insurance company still being able to sue the borrower, so that is,
2: wow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you get, we get little nuggets like that on this, on this <laughs> and you're not, cause you're not, you're definitely not the only one, Heather. I mean, obviously you, um, know a lot of things about law and you're, so you would be classified as, you know, someone that's a little more sophisticated about this type of thing. And you didn't know. Um, the only reason I know is because, uh, the previous firm I worked at did a lot of real estate and gave advice on mortgages like this. Right. And, um, that's why I know. And mm. so, and it was, people don't know, and they should know before mm. you do that. Mm-hmm. You that yeah. Way.
0: It's kind of like an informed consent. Like you understand that this is the way it is, but there's no way around it. Like that's the rule, right? right. If you uh, have less than 20% down, you have to pay the insurance premium. In Canada, we have three insurers, CMHD, Sagan, and Genworth. And Um, all three of them have different qualifying criteria and that's up to your, you know, your mortgage broker and your lender to find out where you fit the best box, if you will. But yeah, there's no way
1: around it, unfortunately, unless you have 20% down. Wow. Does that obligation go away or go down as you pay down your mortgage or as you refinance, or does it always hang out there then? Like is if CMHC mortgage, always a CMHC mortgage.
0: So the premium, so it's a one-time fee, Heather, uh, and the premium... Uh, reduces at every 5% interval, interval So for example, if you bought a house with 5% down, we would okay. add 4% on for the CMHC fee. Okay. If you bought a house with 10% down, we would add 3.1% on to your mortgage and CMHC fee, but it's a one-time fee. So it doesn't go away. It just sits there um, as a one-time fee being added uh, onto your mortgage. So it doesn't really uh, decrease or anything like that because it was a one-time addition to your mortgage.
2: You bought the insurance. Yes, It's a one-time payment. You buy the insurance, and then it, the risk goes down, of course, because as you pay down your mortgage, right, there's and less of a risk. It's gonna be
1: right hopefully the housing market wouldn't tank to the extent that (laughs) 30 years later you're in a default position with negative equity but gotcha okay well fascinating thank you for that no problem
3: interesting so i guess can you oh go ahead kim I was gonna say I have have another sort of uh, curiosity around that. So so basically, we have in in like insured mortgages. So people who are putting less than twenty percent down, and then there's the convention. I think we call them conventional mortgages, yeah. where people are putting twenty percent down. Mm-hmm. So so I, I know in the I I know in the news today they were talking about how the government was going to go back and stress test people who were um, in the conventional mortgage scenario. Mm -hmm. So what happens if somebody signs up for a conventional mortgage and the government, you know, goes through their program? Is that going to potentially force people into into some kind of handcuffs if they don't meet these requirements? Or what happens if, and uh, you might not know this because it's kind of just coming back into vogue here or, or up for discussion. What happens when, people are maybe assessed and and they're saying, you guys don't really have enough equity in your home. We're worried about the mortgage you own. So we're going to put some kind of penalty on you. What does that look like?
0: Okay, so there was a number of things that were brought up there. So let's talk about the stress test. Okay, so a couple of years ago, the government was worried, like you said, about uh, basically the subprime market crisis that happened uh, down in the States, and there were so many foreclosures, and the Canadian government was really uh, proactive in saying, hey, we don't want that to happen here in Canada, so we're going to implement a stress test. So, uh, for example, uh, just to give you an idea of what a stress test is, uh, a five-year fixed rate mortgage today is 2.04%, so that's what you would pay. However, you have to qualify at a stress test rate of 4.79%. So you qualify way higher. So in the event that your mortgage comes up for renewal in five years, you actually qualified at 4.79. So there's more likelihood that you are going to be able to afford your mortgage when it comes up for renewal in the event rates rise. So that makes a ton of sense. Currently, like you mentioned, there's high ratio in conventional mortgages. Um, both right now, high ratio and conventional mortgages qualify under a stress test of 4.79%. Uh, but what the news was today is they're thinking about making the qualifying rate for um Truly conventional mortgages, so ones that can't be insured, uh, 0.5 higher. So I think they were talking instead of 4.79. Uh, what is that? 5.29. Uh, so that you would qualify at 5.29. So basically, what that would do, it would allow people less borrowing power. So they wouldn't be able to uh, be able to qualify for as high of a purchase price as they would have under the original stress test. So Kim, I guess the answer to your question is what would happen? They would be declined.
3: Right. But if they already have
0: a mortgage, this is too much mortgage for your income. You don't qualify under the stress test. And we would reduce the amount uh, that they would be allowed to borrow. We would decrease their pre-approval limit is what would happen.
3: But if you have a mortgage, you're you're good. So maybe people thinking about divorce should should speed things up so they don't... (laughs) (laughs) But for it not so faster
0: <laughs>
2: You're even just thinking about divorce. Do it now.
3: <laughs>
2: That's not generally advice that we, uh, we give as lawyers. In fact, we, uh, we give no. it. or we have to.
3: I, I'm a financial advisor at, at Raymond James, by the way. I, I think my compliance department needs me to say that out loud. Um, so, so yes, I, I do not come from a legal perspective. I'm just thinking if people want to qualify for a mortgage, uh. they do have to be aware of these little rules and follow the news and make sure that they are up to to speed on on what's happening because things can change well i think overall kim i mean the if you've been reading
0: in the news lately i mean you can't not read it
3: mm-hmm.
0: or hear it on the radio or on the tv i mean the federal government is very concerned of what's happening with housing prices right now like all of a sudden we quickly had a you know, an increase in volume and an increase in housing prices. Now, here in Alberta, it's not near as bad as it is in you know in Vancouver or in the GTA. Um, but if you, you know, kind of read closely, it says that the federal government is watching closely as to what's happening with the housing market. So I don't doubt uh, that there's going to be some rule changes coming up relatively quickly. If I was betting, I would bet that on April 19th, when Christia Freeland, our finance minister comes up with her new budget, I would expect to see some changes uh, to mortgage guidelines and to maybe some of the rules surrounding real estate, um, you know, to come out in that budget. I kind of thought it might happen this week, uh, but I was wrong, obviously, because it hasn't happened this week. Uh, But I do anticipate some rules uh, coming forward. Uh, to stop some of the stuff that's going on right
2: now in the housing market.
1: So lots of these regulations sound like they're kind of there in a way to protect people from themselves, from overextending (laughs) themselves financially, like they're looking at people's financial situations and saying, based on what you're earning right now, we can kind of guess what you're going to earn in the future. And if mortgage rates go up too much, you're not going to be able to make these payments. So we don't want to lend you $400,000 right now. Is that kind of the way it works? Well, lending
0: isn't predictive. Uh, So we don't Uh, The only thing we do from a predictive standpoint is we look at your likelihood of default through your credit bureau so if you've been late on any payments or anything like that has a bit of a predictive behavior, uh, from a credit score uh, okay. standpoint, uh, but from an income stand- standpoint, it's, there's no predictive nature of that at all. It's based on a, okay. a past history. So typically we're using a two year average if you're an hourly wage earner. So we're taking your 2019 and your 2020 T4s and averaging them out. Um, or if you have a guaranteed salary, we'll use your guaranteed salary or, um, there's no, I'm getting a raise in six months. Can I use that towards a mortgage? It it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. It's
1: what you've proven to be viable in the past. Not, but, okay. You, so you happen They won't take my word for it that tomorrow next year is gonna be better. <laughs> no, no, okay. no, they won't. I know you're good
0: for it, Heather. You're a really good person, but uh, no, they won't take your
2: word for it.
0: <laughs> okay.
2: I think the I think what Heather was getting at at the predictive nature of things is a stress test.
0: Yes, right. Oh, yeah. Okay, sorry, sorry. Yes. Um Yeah. So they're making sure that, like you said, they're protecting people from themselves so that they, you know, despite the fact that they want a $700,000 home, they can only afford a $300,000 home and the stress test makes sure, you know, that they don't buy the $700,000 home because it's too much, you know, for their, their income for Uh sure. So yeah, protects people from themselves.
3: Uh
2: Too much risk for the, for the collective good, I guess, is the idea, right? Because, uh, like, nobody cares. Like, the government doesn't really care if one person defaults on their mortgage and has to go into foreclosure. Right. What they care about is financial collapse of our society and, mm-hmm. uh, what, like, what we saw in 2008.
1: Yes. Right. So you have all-time low mortgage rates right now. So that looks and and truly is really affordable for folks at the moment. But as soon as those rates go up, that means your mortgage payments go up and that becomes less and less affordable. Yeah, they're making sure that when you come up for renewal, so despite
0: the fact that you're paying 2% now, they make sure that you can qualify uh, today's qualifying rate is 4.79. They make sure when you're up for renewal that you can still afford your mortgage payment in the event that rates increase.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah, I, I do think that there'll be some changes to uh, because uh, household and consumer debt in Canada is staggeringly high uh, of how much debt people carry. I do anticipate there'll be some changes to the home equity line of credit rules uh, that are going to come into play, I would think, uh, relatively soon as well. And, and you
3: mean the ratio, the 65% ratio, I think that's how it is. I, potentially, uh, but what I've been reading, because I said I'm a bit of a
0: geek and I read all of these economist reports and stuff like that, um, the kind of the word on the street is not allowing. Um, so right now you can use your home equity line of credit. Uh, the, so the money sitting on your home equity line of credit as a down payment for a new purchase. And they're not wanting that to happen uh, moving forward because people are far too leveraged at this mm-hmm. point in
2: time. What is the ratio right now? Like, w- sorry, w- what is our borrowing rate? How how over borrowed are we in Canada?
3: I haven't checked recently, uh, Evan. Does anybody know that? Uh, Kim, sure. off the top of your head? I'm. It was one point seven something the last time I looked. Uh, I was just going to
0: say the same thing. One point seven percent for every dollar you you
3: you owe one point seven percent. It's a lot.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, that
3: brings up a question about bankruptcy and consumer proposals. If you if you have one of those things, like we know Canadians are highly levered and, and there's a lot of personal debt. Many, many people out there have a consumer proposal of bankruptcy under their name. What does that do when it comes time to divorce and they need to buy property? They don't. They rent there's no
0: that's taken very seriously in the lending world um consumer proposals and bankruptcies are viewed fairly similar to each other uh so essentially uh the rule is is if you've had a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal um it has to be discharged Uh, it has to be at least two years post discharge and they have you have uh 0% tolerance of having any further late payments. So if you've had a bankruptcy and then you're late on your cell phone bill, too bad. So sad. Like you've, you had an opportunity to fix your ways after you went bankrupt. They expect you to be perfect uh, after that. So, um, if you've been in that situation, um, and you know, lots of times bad things happen to good people. Um, I don't want to paint everybody who, you know, has had that situation that they're a bad person cause they're not. Um, but it is taken seriously. And like I said, two years post discharge, and then you have to, you certainly wouldn't be allowed gifted down payment either. They would want you to see you save some money, have some skin in the game, you know, stuff like that. It's certainly harder, um after bankruptcy, like for sure harder. I'm glad you're talking about And it, and it about should that. be, quite honestly. Like it, I don't think it should be easy uh, to be able to obtain, um, Homeownership ownership is a privilege, not a right. That's the way I see it. And if you've made mistakes in the past, um, you kind of have to prove yourself worthy.
2: I'm glad you're talking about that because um, a lot of times people in tough situations, debt wise, may be tempted to feel like bankruptcy is like a get out of jail free card, get a fresh start. And I mean, that is kind of the point of bankruptcy laws. And so I understand why they start thinking that way, but there's more consequences, uh, lasting consequences from what I'm hearing you say, Mm -hmm. and just, uh, oh, you don't have to pay all that debt back.
0: Yeah, so especially if you like, if you lose a home during a bankruptcy, so if they foreclose uh, on your home during bankruptcy, the likelihood of ever getting a mortgage again is very minimal. Uh, because if you've, uh, of course, like if you borrowed your friend a hundred bucks and then they didn't pay you back, would you borrow them, you know, money again? No, this is the exact same situation. If you bank borrows you hundreds of thousands of dollars and then you don't pay it back. Is the next bank going to borrow you hundreds of thousands of dollars? Probably not. Your you know, behavior hasn't, you, know, you don't have a really good track record uh-huh. <laughs> when it comes to stuff like that, right? So,
2: that brings up a really important question. Where are you from, Krista? Here, Alberta. Interesting, because I've never heard, I, I've heard some people use the word borrow for the word lend. Uh, oh. And it, I just haven't heard that a lot here. So I, sorry, one of my backgrounds is I did a linguistics degree, so (laughs) these types of things I find really interesting, like dialectal variants. And so like in England, they'll say, uh, they'll use learn as a verb, like instead of teach. Oh, like he learned me and like straight that that is places in England and some dialects that is accepted. That's normal here. you, You sound, you don't sound, um, Learned. If you use learn, to mean teach here in Canada, but borrow as, as lend, I, I just, uh, I found that a very interesting use of the word borrow.
3: There we go. Okay. Higher, higher intellect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks Kim. Kim?
2: <laughs> Kim, do you have any, um, anything else you can add to like the dire consequences of, or the challenges that somebody who's been through bankruptcy will face?
3: I'm so I only recently learned about an R rating and, and, and Mm -hmm. what an R rating will do to you and what levels there are. So if you don't pay a bill, you get a rating. And I've only, I only just recently (laughs) learned about this. So I'm, I'm assuming nobody else, a lot of people don't know about this and what are the really bad things to do versus like the somewhat okay? Like if I don't, if I let my overdraft kick in on my checkings account, does that give me an R rating mm. um, or, or does it not? And what are the things that people should be careful about when they're paying bills? Uh, mm. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that, Krista, because I don't have a lot of knowledge on, on this.
0: Yeah. So the R rating you're talking about um, it refers to revolving. So uh, when, when I look at a credit bureau, it's probably Greek uh, to most people because it's a bunch of lines and numbers and all sorts of stuff. So it's kind of like coding language, but for lending. Um, So basically what happens is, you know, if your cell phone's reporting to your credit bureau, which it does and your credit card and your mortgage and all of these things report to your credit bureau, um, an R1 means you're paying on time it means that everything's, you know, you get the bill you pay within a lot of time frame. If it goes R2, it means you're 30 days late. If it goes R3, you're 60 days late. R4, 90 days late. R5, they're often registering a collection. Um, R9 means that there is, it's gone for collection and then you'll actually see uh, a notice of public interest, you know, that there's been a collection um, administered on a credit bureau. Um, So it's really important that you pay on time. So if you find yourself in a situation that, you know, maybe you've got a credit card bill or something like that, and I strongly recommend paying off your credit card every single month because credit card interest is incredibly hard to get out from behind, but let's say you had a tough month and you couldn't, uh, at least make your minimum payment on time. That's the key there. Uh, So make the minimum payment on time, and then of course interest will start accumulating, but that will stop if you make a zero payment, then it's going to go R2 on your credit rating, and that's going to start lowering your credit score. Um, So the key, uh, the R ratings are your ability to pay on time. So it's important uh, that anything that reports to your credit bureau gets paid on time. And most things report, actually, I shouldn't say most things, you know, anything that's a credit facility. So a car loan, a credit card, a line of credit, your cell phone, those all report to your credit bureau. Things that don't report to your credit bureau are like your car insurance or your utilities. um, Those don't report uh, to your credit bureau. So, Although the utilities in your house are relatively important, uh, you know you don't really want those shut off. But if you're more concerned about your credit rating, uh, I guess I'm not telling you where to default. <laughs>
2: sacrifice those for the cell phone? <laughs> Put no, on that your
0: sweater. Report, your cell phone reports to the credit bureau. Don't screw that up.
2: Put on your sweater and light a candle
0: your heat might get shut off but you can talk on your cell phone sorry that's so wrong on so many levels
3: when it comes to qualifying for a mortgage then like i mean the the lenders look at the credit score and then as i understand it there's like the five c's like this is all through textbooks i've done on the financial planning side so so what what is the what is really bad like what do we not want to see and what do we not want to do and how do we fix our credit score So the
0: two major components of your credit score are how much you're borrowing and how timely you are in paying back. So 35% of your score goes towards your timeliness. So making your minimum payment on time. So that's critical in improving your credit score is paying on time. The second largest or I guess of equivalent importance is how much you're borrowing. So 35% of your score goes towards how much you're borrowing. So I strongly recommend that if you have a credit limit of let's say $5,000 on your credit score, uh, sorry, if you have $5,000 limit on your credit card, you don't max out that credit card because you're now you're using all of your available credit. You really want to make sure your balances are at least 50% of your limit. So again, I strongly recommend that you pay off your balances in full every single month. But in the event that you can't, um, keep your limits at least 50%, keep your balances at least 50% of your limit. Uh, that will keep your credit score revolving high.
1: Does mm. that make sense? Uh huh. Uh huh. That's really and- interesting.
2: Yeah, it's good to know.
1: Are spouses' credit scores tied to one another's? Like, do you need to worry about your ex's credit score um, in the event of a separation if you're going to try and qualify for any kind of lending? So if you're financially tied, yes. So let's say that you
0: have a joint car loan or a credit card with a supplementary card for your spouse. Those are tied together uh, financially. So if your ex... Uh, takes over the car, but your name's on it and then defaults on the car payment, okay. yes, that'll report as an R2 or an R3 on your credit bureau. And whenever you have a mortgage application and there's a late payment, they ask, what happened? Why is this R2? Why is this R3? Why did this go to collection? So I have to explain any default um, that's sitting on a, on a credit bureau. So that's why I think it's really important, Heather, that you that we divide uh, and don't keep people tied together, uh, financially because it can really affect the other person if they keep joint trade lines together.
1: Mm, okay. That's good to know.
2: But Krista, so if your starter husband was terrible with paying bills <laughs> and, um,
1: Hypothetically. I'm yeah, that, yeah.
2: No, not, your actu- not your actual starter husband. We don't want to say anything <laughs> bad about him. You. Um, but your, as in, you know, somebody's starter husband
3: okay.
2: is terrible with finances, but, this, but they don't have any joint credit cards or joint um, loans or anything like that. Then there's no effect on yeah. each other's credit? Okay.
0: Yeah. Unless there's a joint mortgage, of course.
2: Right. So but if the mortgage uh, is in good standing, if the joint mortgage is in good standing, then starter husband can be terrible with the other stuff and you're still fine. Correct. Okay.
0: Yes. Yeah, you won't be tied to them if you don't have joint. Um, uh, because when you pull a credit bureau, it's based on your social insurance number, your birth date and your name. So it's not tied uh, to them in any way because your social insurance number isn't attached to their social
1: insurance number. Mm. Right. It doesn't know who you're married to. It does not know who you're married to. It just knows who you have joint debts with.
0: Yes. And often, like, often we see joint debts that aren't necessarily a spouse. Right. So, for example, if a, if a parent, you know, co-signs a car loan, it just says J on the credit bureau, but it doesn't say who it's joint with. Um, so, it, it, it isn't necessarily a spouse is all I'm saying.
1: Gotcha. Oh, that's good to know as well.
3: So for pre, pre-planning pre our divorces, and we've been linked to our spouse, joint accounts, everything. What are your suggestions in terms of how somebody should start to set up their banking situation? Because mm-hmm. I know that the a line of credit plays a part in the ratio on your mm-hmm. calculating your mortgage. So do would we be doing somebody a disservice saying you should set up your own bank accounts, get your own line of credit, all this kind of stuff. So what's your take on that? Well, financial
0: independence is important. So set it up without having a co-borrower, you know, set it up independently on your own. Um, You know, good idea to have your own bank account uh, to have that kind of, because um, if you're purchasing a new home so if you're not doing a spell to buy it if you're purchasing a new home the lender is going to ask to see to see a 90-day history of your down payment funds so if you've got you know money sitting in a savings account you want that in your own name you know for the previous 90 days so that's a good idea um from a line of credit standpoint um that's actually a bit of a tricky one kim because it's evolving today as we speak um so typically the way it used to be as in like two weeks ago, uh, if you had a line of credit that had a limit of let's say $20,000 and you owed zero on it, it wouldn't affect your debt servicing calculations at all. It would just be like available credit for you. Uh, But recently the lenders have been saying, we are going to pretend that this line of credit is fully advanced at $20,000. And the rule with that is despite your payment is interest only. Uh, so that might only be like 50 or 60 bucks or a hundred bucks from a lending standpoint, you actually have to qualify at 3% of the limit. So 3% of, um, you know, the limit of the, of the line of credit, you know, ends up being quite a significant payment. It's not interest only. So it it does become difficult to qualify uh, for a mortgage if you have a, uh, you know, a large line of credit. Again, it's a bit of a, a moving target right now because those guidelines are changing with COVID. If the balance was zero before, it didn't affect you. But now a lot of the lenders are saying you have access to $20,000. We're pretending that the $20,000 is, you know, borrowed out.
2: Huh. Oh, that, so I, that was going to be my next question was what about available credit? So you've answered the question about line of credit, which... That's got to be annoying to people that are just yes. learning that. Uh, what about credit cards? Uh, yeah,
0: we haven't seen them doing that on credit cards. So if you have only $1,000 owing and you have a $25,000 limit, typically it's just you use whatever the balance is that's currently owing, not the limit. It's the lines of credit of our particular concern.
2: Well, I, I'm wondering why that is because obviously credit cards weigh higher interest. Is it because they're thinking – Well, because it's higher interest, you're less likely to run that up than a line of credit, which has usually lower credit or interest. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Why are they attacking line of credits?
3: Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe it's a larger pool that typically could be advanced on the line of credit. Mm. Well, I think and maybe it's because it's cost-effective
0: borrowing, right? So if you cash advance a credit card, You're literally paying 20% interest. If you withdraw cash off of your line of credit, you're paying likely, you know, if it's a home equity line of credit, you're paying prime plus a half. You're paying, you know,
1: three
0: and a half percent, you know, uh, versus 20%. So I think less people are likely to, they're unlikely to cash advance their credit card on a large dollar amount. However, that being said, I wouldn't be shocked if, you know, there are the odd people that have very large limits on their credit card not typically, but there are a few that have like a 50,000 you know, or greater limit on their credit card. Um, It wouldn't shock me in today's COVID lending world that they would say, we're gonna pretend that this is fully advanced. Um, Despite that the rule is written one way, that doesn't mean that they're actually following that from a guideline perspective. They are being a lot more cautious with borrowing these days.
1: That's interesting because they also, the banks do seem to want to lend money as well, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I often get like, oh, we're going to increase your credit card limit. You get those once or twice a year and they're constantly bumping it up. So that's interesting. Um, People maybe want to think about that when they're offered that kind of um, credit increase from their banks.
0: Yeah, for sure. And there's, you know, in the last probably five years, there's been significant changes to the rules, you know, surrounding that stuff is like, remember you used to get the, you're pre-approved, you know, in the mail and it would have Uh like your name, address and birth date and everything written Uh right on it, Uh you know, for the male fraudster to steal it. Um, (laughs) I think there's some rules now that say like they can only offer an increase, you know, ever so often, Mm. um, and only to the Heather, you clearly have good credit uh, because they don't offer it to folks <laughs> who are struggling and are at their limit. They're offering it to the people who don't owe anything. <laughs> okay, right, right.
1: Okay, hmm. that is interesting. So what if you don't have much of a credit history? Like are there things you can do to build one up that, you know, if you don't have a huge income or you don't have a lot of assets to build up a bit of a credit history?
0: Yeah, actually, that's a great question. I mean, I have, a, I have an 18 and 19-year-old kid. So right now I'm sitting with them saying, hey, it's time to start building your credit history because uh, mom doesn't want to have to co-sign for you forever. Uh, so um, <laughs> one of the things, so like cell phone, putting your cell phone in your own personal name if you're establishing credit is a great start. So get your kids off of your cell phone plan and put them on their own Uh, cell phone plan. That's a great place to to start in establishing credit. Uh, Student lines of credit report to the credit bureau. So that's another great place to start Um, or getting a small loan or even a secured credit card. Uh, Capital One has a secured credit card where you give them 500 bucks Uh, and then they offer you a credit card for 500 bucks. And then it's your job to manage it and, you know, pay it on time. And they've got your money in the event that you screw up. Uh, but it's a great place to start from a mortgage standpoint, a lender is looking for a minimum of two different revolving trade facilities. um, and they're looking for about $2,500 worth of revolving credit. So it does take a little bit of effort to get your credit established, but you got to start, got to start somewhere. So um, get a credit card, you know, if it needs a cosigner in the beginning, typically if you manage it well for a year, then you can typically take the cosigner off. Um, You know, get that cell phone in your name, start with a small loan, even if you don't need the money. Just get a small loan, like a $5,000 loan and leave the money sitting in your savings account and pay it back every single month to start establishing credit. Uh, Do anything along those lines because credit is really important. Credit's kind of what makes the world go round. Um, when you're looking to, you know, buy a home or buy a vehicle or an RV or whatever you're wanting to do, credit's important. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. I like how this is kind of turning into like tips for a good credit score with Krista because it's good information to have. I'm like everyone, like you said, credit makes the world go round Mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's especially important if you have good planning about that. Um, about your credit, then that's not going to hurt you if you unhappily happen to be going through a divorce. That will be an asset for you. Um, So if you do, to to go back a second to the, um, when we're talking about having credit cards and and lines of credit, um, available credit hurting you when you go for a mortgage Obviously, it's easy to close an account. You just close it. You can, mm-hmm. If there's no balance, you can e- close it without an issue. Is it, uh, is it a challenge generally to roll back um, like credit limits on both credit cards and lines of credit? Do you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, typically, we don't see people rolling back limits. We see them converting them into a loan. Because that 3% rule that I just told you about, You know, if you have a $20,000 line of credit, all of a sudden we have to debt service a payment of $600 opposed to the interest only payment of $60. Uh, However, if you convert that into a loan, then you have a fixed payment of, you know, let's say, you know, $130 every two weeks or whatever it is. So, yeah, I don't, I am sure if you asked, they would probably lower your limit on something you just need to ask. But, you know, from a qualification standpoint, it typically is, you know, converting it uh, to get it paid back faster. Mm. Uh, home ec- Lines of credit are really difficult for a lot of people. Um, it's one of the areas that people struggle the most. I probably get a phone call at least th- once a month saying, take my home equity line of credit away. Like, this is a bad thing for us. We struggle with this. As soon as we can't pay off our credit card, we just plunk it on the home equity line of credit. Oh, we really want a quad. You know, let's just We'll put it on the line of credit and we'll just make monthly payments, but people are not disciplined enough, or a lot of people aren't disciplined enough. Um, it's a big area of struggle uh, for a lot of people. And I think that's why the bank is cracking down, you know, and lending is cracking down on those lines of credit because they are a struggle for a lot of Canadians.
1: Uh, it's too tempting to have access to that
3: money sitting there.
0: It's, it's money available and it's cheap.
3: Oh. Krista, um, last two weeks ago I was on a um, a webinar. I kind of I thought it was gonna be about something else. Anyways, I ended up on this webinar and it was all about consolidation loans, which I, I didn't know much about. So I, I stayed, I stuck with it and listened through this thing. And it sounded the the fellow doing the presentation, it was in cahoots with uh, MNP. And it sounded like their shop was special like specializing in consolidation loans. Is that a thing or can, could somebody come to you for consolidation of their their debts? Because we know in divorce, there, there's, you know, scenarios where people are just dividing debts and, and mm. they end up with a chunk on their own. What, how does that work for somebody trying to clean up a bunch of little pockets of, of loans? Okay. Um,
0: so if it's matrimonial debt and they're taking over the home, we can include it. Right. If there's still a house involved, I can't do any lending unless it's attached to a home. It's securitized. So um, that's the only way that I can help out with that is if we're including it uh, in the division of matrimonial property. Um, However, when you said um, MNP, that kind of got the hairs on the back of my neck kind of standing up because that to me is a bankruptcy or Um, consumer proposal trustee type situation, is that what it was?
3: Yeah, their insolvency department was just part of this discussion on what it looks mm. like to, to consolidate loans. Because a lot of people have loans all over, and there is a scenario where you can pull them together for a better rate. Mm-hmm. And I think MNP was, they were mostly just listening in, but um, they had this specialized lender in giving us different scenarios about what it looks like to consolidate loans versus what it looks like not to consolidate well
0: consolidation is a fantastic tool uh to wrap all of these payments up into one so it makes it a little bit more manageable i i would say with extreme caution uh to really check out the source where you're getting that consolidation loan Uh, because you know, you hear these advertisements for money mentors and stuff like that on the radio, those actually register on your credit bureau, um, like from an insolvency standpoint. And again, it's like ruining your credit for the next, um, two years. And that stuff stays on your credit bureau. Like it reports for another six to seven years. Mm -hmm. So if you need a consolidation loan, I strongly recommend that you talk to your bank, um, before you go see some sort of trustee um, or even calling those money mentors. I mean, I do. I just don't love the concept of, I like the concept of consolidating. I just need, think you need to be really, really careful where you go. Does that make sense? Because you don't want yeah. that further it's one thing to get a consolidation loan from a bank where you, they pay out your three credit cards and have one loan payment. That reports normally on your credit bureau. If you are going to any sort of trustee um, or debt consolidator, uh, it you know can report as like R5 on your credit bureau and it's registered um, that you've seen a debt consolidator. Well, can you imagine how hard it is to get a mortgage once you've got debt consolidation written onto your credit bureau? And it's going to stay there for a long time. So I just proceed with a lot of caution if you find yourself in that situation.
3: I think that's a, that's a really important thing to know. I think nobody uh-huh. knows that. Uh-huh. I, I'm just guessing, but I like I didn't know that, and I I end up on lending webinars, right? So. <laughs>
2: so you just dropping the truth bombs yeah (laughs) amazing
0: (laughs) i teach them you know i i think of this from a you know from a from a mom perspective uh who teaches kids about credit (laughs) if you're a crappy money manager who teaches your kids about money Right. Uh, So I find myself, you know, gathering knowledge in this area. And I volunteer at the local high school to go in and teach kids about credit. Uh, Because if you don't have a family that teaches you about this kind of stuff, where you were raised by parents who were not really good with managing money, how, where do you even learn? Where do you learn from?
2: Well, don't worry. The government's going to teach us now. (laughs) <laughs> which i mean I'm, I'm saying that to poke fun but I, I i i think that's great that's a step in the right direction that that's now part of going to be part of like the standard curriculum that they learn something about money yeah. but yeah, it's such a great point krista because financial education is just it's um and financial literacy literacy is something that People don't know about it. Like, I, why did I have to learn all these things that I know about finances? What I do know as an adult, why didn't I learn them younger? I don't know. So yeah. Yeah. Listen to this podcast and you'll get, learn all kinds of things.
1: <laughs> yeah. We're going to have to have you back. Cause I have what, like 1000 more questions for you that are, <laughs> that
0: are coming out of this. But... I'm happy, happy to brain dump
1: on you all. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, I guess it looks like we're wrapping up. I just wanted to stay, say for the record that I was not trying to say anything negative about uh, your idiolect, your dialect of, of how you were using borrowing. No, so no, I just want no, to make no, that clear it? for the record because, you know, some people can listen to it and think like, what a jerk, what is he saying no. about her? And uh, no, it was not meant anything like that.
0: So You know what, Evan? Sometimes people ask me if I'm American. Really? Yeah. So I maybe just talk a little different than most folks. I'm not sure, uh, but I'm not easily offended and I wasn't offended by your comments. So we're I, good. Good.
2: good, <laughs> Cause it was, it was definitely not meant to be offensive and uh, I certainly valued all of the stuff that you've shared. I've learned a lot from this, this uh, session.
1: Perfect. Yeah. It's been so fantastic and very helpful. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing our, your knowledge with us, Krista.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to, pass it on. Of course, if anybody has uh, mortgage-related questions or even credit-related questions, I'm certainly, you know, available to answer any questions that uh, people have. I think you need, you need to find a resource, right? A resource that can be trusted and can be a straight shooter. Um, I, I, I value honesty and whether I think something's going to be good or bad for you, I'll tell you, you know, that's a good choice or I would consider maybe not
2: doing that. Yeah, well, drop your contact details right here. Tell it, like, how can people get a hold of you?
0: Oh, okay, sure. Uh, so my... Can I duck? Uh, <laughs> I love my, it. Um, my website is mortgage simple not mortgages made simple so my website is mortgagesimple.ca uh, email is krista at mortgagesimple.ca krista k-r-i-s-t-a and my phone number is 780-946-6222 if
2: you need any help with that stuff that's great because some people will be listening to this just on the podcast so uh hearing those details is is helpful so
3: I have one more question. Can people from other provinces reach out to you? I accidentally gave a referral to you last week, and, but it was somebody in a different province. And then, oh, it's okay. That's okay. Okay. So I
0: have um, my, so my mortgage brokering license is based out of Alberta, uh, but I have additional um, jurisdiction because I'm a... Uh, Oh my God. I don't even remember my designation. Uh, Canadian Mortgage Professional. So um, I'm accredited across Canada. So providing the majority of my business is uh, done in Alberta, I can do business and and do do business um, all across Canada, with the exception of the province of Quebec.
2: They're always special.
0: special. No comment.
2: I don't think they even call it a mortgage, right?
0: I don't know. What do they call it?
2: A hypothec or hypothec or something. Hypothec. Yeah, there you go.
0: Oh, I didn't even know that. I just learned something today from you guys.
2: <laughs> Yo. That's
3: what we're all about.
2: Yeah, <laughs> learning.
3: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Krista. No problem. Thanks for your time, guys. <laughs>
2: Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Cahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James Advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Stole my heart from my lips. That was it. It is